Well, good morning, Westwood. It's good to see you. Uh, we are jumping right back into our series, Journey to the Cross. Uh, we're walking through the signs that John has curated, this list of seven miraculous signs leading ultimately to the eighth sign, to the resurrection of Jesus. And today, we're, it's Palm Sunday, which is awesome. Hosanna in the highest. We are going to look at the day uh, just before that, um, uh, leading into this, this is John chapter 11, a famous scene uh, where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus back to life. Just a reminder, uh, John has given us a preview at the very end of his book uh, uh, of his strategy for curating this list. He tells us in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so what we are learning here is that John has given us a very specific lens to view these signs through, that they are revealing two things about Jesus' identity, that he is Christ, he's Messiah, he's the one who will fulfill all the ancient promises of Israel, and he is son of God, he is the one uh, that God has sent into the world to reveal who God is, that he is the presence of God himself on earth earth, and if we would believe in him, we might find life, have life in him. And so this is his strategy in putting this together. Today we come to John chapter 11. It's a long chapter. We're going to look at 53 verses uh, today. And so uh, just to set it up for a moment, this is a story of uh, one of Jesus' best friends. His name is Lazarus. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. You'll recognize those names from other stories in the gospel account. Jesus has a lot of connection with this family. They live in Bethany, which is just two miles from Jerusalem, and uh, Jesus spent a lot of time uh, with them. And what has happened here is that Lazarus has fallen gravely ill, and um, his sisters send for Jesus and say, quick, you've got to come. It makes sense. Jesus is a healer. He, he works miracles. Many other people have been healed by Jesus, and this is one of his best friends. So they're expecting that Jesus will come, immediately drop everything, come to their rescue. And one of the most perplexing things is that he does not do that. He waits. He does not respond to their cries for help. And um, it's a very disorienting open to the story. It, it's, it, you, you beg the question, I mean, we've been there, right? Why, God, why would you do this? Why would you ever do this? They're reeling here from pain of unmet expectations. This is not how we thought it would go. They're grieving the loss of someone or the, the impending loss of someone that they love. Uh, they're unsure. God, why would you have let this happen? They're feeling scared and vulnerable. And it is in this space now that I want to show you 10 anchors for the soul when God doesn't make sense. 10 anchors when God doesn't make sense. Because you and I know exactly how this feels, don't we? And so, let's turn to God's word, which is our greatest 
source of hope and truth and reality. And let's learn these 10 anchors for for our soul when God doesn't make sense, okay? Let's look at verse one. John chapter 11, verse one. If you have a Bible where you're uh, seated, seated wherever you are, would you grab it? John chapter 11, we're gonna begin here in verse one. We'll also put the verses on the screen so you can track in that way. Here we are. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, it may feel to us at first that maybe Jesus is sort of blowing them off here. Um, This illness isn't going to lead to death. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just stop being so concerned. That's not really what he's doing here. What he's doing is he's giving them a clue. Uh, He's giving them his motive in everything that he's about to do here. He says, I'm, I am going to now act in a way that brings maximum glory to God and maximum glory to myself. It also will happen to be the very same things that are best for Lazarus and for you, Mary and Martha, and for everyone here who's watching. And we get this lens here. This is the first anchor we, re- we have to remember is that God works always for his glory and our, go- our joy. God works always for his glory and our joy. And we stop and we think, well, wouldn't it bring God more glory if Jesus would heal Lazarus so he never had to suffer, no more pain, so Mary and Martha didn't have to weep, so wouldn't it be more glorious to avoid the pain of loss and sorrow and heartache here? Wouldn't that scenario bring God more glory? Well, apparently not. Apparently, the pathway to God's greatest glory here is through pain, through sorrow, through death, into resurrection and joy. Apparently, taking a shortcut around pain, sorrow, and death is a less glorious route. That's what this means. Which means that in some very hard-to-fathom way, our, uh, our joy and God's glory, having gone through sorrow to the very other side, must be deeper, fuller, richer, and more meaningful than what we would have had if we had been left in our innocence and spared the pain it took to get us to the other side. I don't really understand that, but that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that when God doesn't make sense, we need to remember that his motive is always his glory and our joy. What will bring him greatest glory and our greatest joy ultimately goes through very hard things. This is what we have to remember. This is an anchor point for our souls. Okay, now look, look with me at verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, 
and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now Jesus, it says he loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, right? No question. He loves them. And it says, so he stayed two days longer. Those things don't sound like they line up, do they? He loved them, so he didn't come. He stayed where he was for two days. It feels like those are opposed to one another. Love and staying, not responding. But those actually go together. So here's the second anchor. In love, God will sometimes disappoint us. In love, God will sometimes disappoint us. Now, in a culture of helicopter parenting where everyone gets a trophy and we do everything we can to try to make sure our kids never face negative things and painful things and don't cry and we give them sugar and lollipops, this is hard for us to fathom that love would ever deliberately allow pain into the life of someone that, that we love, right? How could God do that? But it says here, in love, he waited. He, he could have run into the problem and solved it before it actually turned dire. But he didn't do that. He allowed Lazarus' death. He allowed the tears and pain of Mary and Martha and all the rest. He himself is going to endure pain. Jesus allowed all of this. Why? Well, Jesus sees more, doesn't he? He knows more, and he intends more. And so in this moment where we could question his love, John is trying to make it clear, no, he loves them. And it is love that is taking the harder route here. It's not the easy route. It's not shortcutting. So friends, when God doesn't make sense in our lives, we have to remember this that in love, God will sometimes disappoint us. Sometimes he won't do what we think is best. Sometimes he won't respond to the things that we ask him to do. But it is because of his love. If we knew everything God knows, we would understand what it is that he's doing. The problem is we don't. But he's always loving in what he does. Look at verse seven now. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? (laughs) Now, this is looking back to uh, chapter 10, uh, where Jesus had a, a very famous statement where he equates himself with God, and the Jews pick up the stones. They're trying to to stone Jesus for blasphemy. Bethany is just two miles from Jerusalem. That scene where they tried to stone him took place in Jerusalem. And so this is enemy territory. He's going back into the danger zone here. Verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. 
This is very cryptic language from Jesus here, but if you go back to John chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, you will see that there Jesus has already given us a clue as to what he means here. He uses the light as a, a marker of the daytime of his ministry and the night as a metaphor for his death. And so what he's trying to say here, basically in a Hebraic way that we don't really get anymore, is he's trying to say there's still time on the clock, okay? They're worried that he's going to go to Jerusalem and be killed right away. He says, look, not immediately. There's still some daylight left here. Look at the very next verse here, 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. (laughs) love this. (laughs) They think he's just taking a nap. Verse 13, now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, "Um, Lazarus has died. (laughs) And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let's go to him. And then Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. (laughs) I love this. It's such an amazing scene. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I know it's risky. I'm going to do it anyway. Thomas is like, okay, fine. We're all going to die anyway. Let's just go. The point is this. They realize the risk that Jesus is taking to go to the side of his friend here. And this is the third anchor here that I think we need to remember, is that Jesus gladly risks himself to save his friends. Jesus gladly risks himself to save his friends. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that that's the character and intention of our Jesus? That Jesus doesn't play it safe. He doesn't hedge his bets. He puts his life on the line for us. He does that for us. He always does that for us. And when God doesn't make sense, friends, we need to remember the character of our God that he is willing to go into the fire to face all of our pain. He is willing to sacrifice himself for us. That's our God. He will not spare anything to love us. We must remember this. Now verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. This is significant because the Jewish people had this superstition that uh, the soul would linger around the body for three days. And so this, the point here is that Lazarus is dead, dead at this point. There's no coming back. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. You know, grief has, what, five stages, right? There's, there's denial. This isn't really happening. There's anger. I'm mad about what's happening. There's bargaining. Maybe I can manipulate and change it and control outcomes and make this better. Uh, then there's depression where it's like I can't control this and I don't like it and I sit in that. And then there's acceptance. This really has indeed happened. And so we have here in, in Martha's words a little bit of anger, a little bit of blame, a little bit of bargaining. Um, but she puts it in the hands of Jesus, doesn't she? 
and this is the fourth anchor for our souls, is that nothing is beyond hope when we give it to Jesus. Nothing is beyond hope when we give it to Jesus. In the hands of Jesus, water turns to wine. In the hands of Jesus, a young boy's fever breaks at a distance. In the hands of Jesus, a lame man walks again. In the hands of Jesus, thousands are fed. In the hands of Jesus, a storm is calmed. In the hands of Jesus, the man born blind can see again. And in the hands of Jesus, friends, there is always hope. There's always hope. And when God doesn't make sense, friends, we've got to remember this. This fourth anchor that nothing is beyond hope when we give it to Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Even right now in the midst of everything we're facing, do you believe that? Look at verse 23 with me. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Just to pause here, um, the Jewish people had no concept of a resurrection taking place in the middle of time. They always saw the resurrection as something that was way out in the distance, in the eschaton. That was the word for the final days when God would make everything right. They believed in the resurrection at the end of time in the eschaton, but Jesus is, is here offering, he's about to offer a resurrection in the middle of time. This is a category breaker. The Jewish people didn't even believe this was really possible. Look at what's happening here. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes and lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's an amazing statement. That the eschatological reality at the end of time, the resurrection that will come, Jesus says, I am that resurrection reality. I am the eschaton in the flesh right here, right now. And everything in ultimate reality hinges on what you do with me. This is powerful language. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He's promising that if we believe in him, there is life beyond the grave in, in the next age. That's what he's saying. Resurrection hope. And then his next statement, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die, is a promise that if we believe in Jesus, he will give us a kind of life on the inside that will be uninterrupted by our death. There is a never dyingness to life with Jesus that your body may fall off at some point, but your soul, your life will have uninterrupted life in the presence of God forever. That's what he's saying. He's saying forever starts today in me, in me. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Now look at verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. 
Remember back at the beginning, we, we quoted it, John 20 verses 30 to 31. She's using the language that John uses at the end of his book. You are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. That's the same phrase. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, right? So look at the, look at the rhetorical symmetry here. This is brilliant. And what Martha is confessing here is that Jesus is indeed Messiah, Christ, Son of God, the one promised who is coming into the world. He is life breaking into the universe. Look at, here's the fifth anchor. This is the key that we've got to hold on to, is that Jesus is life from beyond the world, friends. Jesus is life from beyond the world. This life that is in Jesus is the life that created the world. He's the, he's the life that stepped into space and time in the person of Jesus. He is the life that is pulsing forth in signs and wonders dis- displaying the glory of God. It is the life that will one day speak and raise forth every soul to resurrection. It is this life that is from beyond the world that has come in the person of Jesus. And when God doesn't make sense, friends, we've got to remember that Jesus is life from beyond the world. That this is hard down here. But we have access to life, abundant, eternal, everlasting, infinite life in the person of Jesus. That is yours always. It can never be taken away. Now look at the next verse, verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and run out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Here's the sixth anchor, friends, is God weeps with us. God weeps with us. This is one of the most beautiful things about our God is that he, he, look at this. Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows the power. He knows the strength. He knows he's going to call forth Lazarus and be reunited with his friend. He knows all that. But he takes the time to enter into the pain and sorrow of his people. He does not short circuit the grief, does he? He weeps with those who weep. You know, sometimes I think we think of God as sort of immune and detached and high above the realities of of the torment and pain of this broken down world, but that is not our God. 
God enters into our pain. He grieves with us. The Father grieves with us. The Son is a sympathetic high priest. He's wrestled with and endured the pains of this world. The Spirit is in us groaning with this broken down reality. The whole triune God enters into our pain, into our sorrow, into our tears. And we are never alone. God's heart breaks when we weep. He's with us. And Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is the greatest treasure. And when God doesn't make sense, friends, we need to cling to the truth that God weeps with us. That we are not alone. That he not only knows and cares, but he bears our sorrows in himself, with us. He is near. Look at verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's interesting. Some are drawn to Jesus because of his grief, his willingness to bear the sorrows of, of his friend and family, right? Some look at that and say, wow, look how much love he has. Others are full of doubt. They're saying, why couldn't Jesus have fixed this? I mean, he, he did all this other stuff. Was he just inept? Did he not care? Is he, was he didn't think this out? Like, what, why, why would he be such a jerk? There's doubt here as to the character of Jesus. You see that? They doubt his goodness, they doubt his wisdom, they doubt his love, they doubt his intentions. And the seventh anchor for our, that we need to remember is that doubt is the natural companion of grief. Doubt is the natural companion of grief. It's really normal. It's normal to doubt God in the midst of our pain and sorrow and grief. If we're honest, we've all been there. We've all asked the questions in the late hours of the night with tear stains on our pillows. God, why are you doing this? Why would you let this through? Why would you allow me to endure this? Why are we going through this as a people? Why would you put us through this, God? Do you even care? Do, 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 does this matter? I mean, are you, just, are you disengaged? Have you left us behind? God, I'm not sure I can trust you right now. It hurts too much. These are real questions. These are real feelings. And it's, it's pointless to ignore the, the deep pain that we're in. If the Psalms teach us anything, it's that we can bring all of the confusion and pain and heartache of our lives and bring it openly before God. But the other thing we have to do is to be, we have to be honest about our doubts but we also have to be a little bit suspicious of our doubts. We have to doubt our doubts, right? Because we know that in our grief, we are prone to this. We're prone to wander. We're prone to, to mistrust. We're prone to throw in the towel. And so we need to recognize when we're grieving, we shouldn't make big decisions. We shouldn't be taking our grief and mapping it over the character of God. This is a time not to give in to those doubts, but to remember to hold fast to Jesus. So we doubt our doubts in the midst 
of our grief. And when God doesn't make sense, friends, we've got to remember that doubt is the natural companion of grief. Verse 38 continues here. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. This word here, he says, deeply moved again. The word is it's so weird. It's, it's enraged. He, he's billowing mad here. The, why is he mad? It's, it's an, a word of anger and outrage. So Jesus is like something. He's just, this is bothersome. What is he so upset about? I think he's looking out on the ravages of sin. I think he's seeing the dominance of Satan who is keeping this world under the, under the torment of death. He's watching the pain, the agony, the suffering, the hurt, the heartache, and he is like, this has got to stop. I am willing to do whatever it takes to make this end. And he sets his jaw and look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, do do I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And friends, on the pathway to glory and joy, Jesus will do some things that don't make any sense to us. Let me say that again. On the pathway to glory and joy, Jesus will do some things that don't make any sense to us. They might even seem unwise or foolish or backwards. But listen to me. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing, even when it doesn't make sense. Because here's the eighth anchor, God's ways are not our ways. God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55 verses eight and nine say, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Friends, very rarely does God end up running down the path that we would have planned for him in life. God consistently breaks our expectations. He throws off our counsel. He thwarts our wishes. And the question is, what do we do when God crosses our will? When he does things, which he's allowed to do, he's God, that don't look like what we would have planned for ourselves. What do we do in that space? Well, it triggers grief, doesn't it? All loss triggers grief. And so we go into the cycle of grief, right? We have denial, anger, um, bargaining, depression, maybe finally acceptance. We get grief. As soon as God does something that we would not have done, we grieve. We grieve. And we smell the stench of grief. And friends, we will go through grief, all of those cycles, but eventually, 
in the grace of God, we hope to get to acceptance where we say, okay, God, you're allowed to do what you do. I'm accepting that this is what's happened. And now I'm handing it to you. And I'm submitting myself to you and saying, you're king. You can lead. I trust you with the future. I don't know what you're doing, but I surrender to you. That's where we need to land. And friends, that's the only way we're going to get to see the glory of God. That's what Jesus says. If did I not tell you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And she says, okay, fine, roll the stone away. I will smell the stench of grief, but I trust you to bring glory in the end. So when God doesn't make sense, friends, we have to remember that God's ways are not our ways. Now look at this next verse here. It actually continues. This is the second half of verse 41. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here's the ninth anchor. Resurrection is but a cry away. Resurrection is but a cry away. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 5 verses 25 to 29? Let me read it to you here. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice, hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So friends, it's a good thing that when Jesus called out, he called Lazarus by name. Because if Jesus had not called Lazarus specifically, if he had just said, come out, every single one of these tombs would have emptied as everyone rises to life as it will be at the very end of the age. Friends, here's the point. It takes one word from the lips of Jesus and life bursts forth resurrection comes. This is the all-powerful voice of the Son of God who speaks and life births into being. It, he's the one who tells darkness to flee, who with a word stills the storm and vanquishes demons and tells death where to go. When God doesn't make sense to us, friends, we've got to remember that resurrection is but a cry away. Resurrection is but a cry away. Verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not, listen to what John says here, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So unknowingly, the, these these religious leaders are going to actually fulfill the plan of God. They're revealing the plan of God in their unknowing prophecy here, and by putting Jesus to death for the sake of the nation, they are actually implementing the very plan that God had from the foundation of the world, that Jesus would be the lamb slain from the foundation of time. This redemption And life that Jesus brought here to Lazarus is what he is about to do for the entire world. Not just for the nation of Israel, but also for every nation, tribe, tongue, language, and people on this planet. That he will be the redeemer of all creation. And by laying down his life, he will give life to the world. And don't you see that this story of the raising of Lazarus in many ways is a preview, a foreshadowing of everything that will happen in the rest of Holy Week as Jesus will go to the cross. And Jesus, uh, who's on the brink of death here, and he is going to the cross. Here's the reality. God will not intervene in his death. Just as Jesus allowed allowed Lazarus to die in order that he might be raised for ultimate glory, God the Father will, though he loves Jesus, in his love for Jesus, will allow him to die and to fall like a seed into the ground in order that he might sprout forth in new life. And so God won't intervene in Jesus' death, but that is not to be confused and as, as God not loving Jesus, and God will allow everything to go wrong. He will allow injustice. He will allow um, abuse. He will allow heartache and betrayal. He will allow tears and sorrow and agony and weeping, and he will allow death to look like it's conquering. It will get much worse before it gets better. He will break all the rules, all the doubts will rise, and he will leave us feeling perplexed and frustrated and devastated and just when all hope is lost, God the Father will with one word say, arise, arise my son, enter into glory and life, come forth. And the 10th anchor we need is right here, is that God is authoring a redemptive twist. God is authoring a redemptive twist. Friends, our God is the great redeemer. 
He brings light out of darkness. He brings order out of chaos. He brings fullness out of emptiness. He brings beauty from ashes. He brings resurrection from crucifixion. He brings life from death and joy from sorrow and glory from humiliation. God is in the business of making all things right through his redemptive love. He's making everything sad come untrue. And even now, in the life of Jesus and in this present moment in Westwood's history, God is working all things together for good for those who love him. Do you believe that? This is our God. He's the great redeemer, friends. When God doesn't make sense, we've got to trust the anchor that God is authoring a redemptive twist. This is what he's doing in all of our lives individually. It's what he's doing corporately in his church. It's what he's doing in the history of the universe. He is redeeming all things through Jesus. I remember um, a song from, that my mom used to listen to. I think it's by Babby Mason. But let me just read some of these lines. I think they're beautiful. All things work for our good. Though sometimes we don't see how they could. Struggles that break our hearts in two sometimes blind us to the truth. Our Father knows what's best for us. His ways are not our own. So when your pathway grows dim and you just don't see him, remember You're never alone. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. So when you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. I love that. When you don't understand, when you don't see his plan, When you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. And so that's the takeaway I just want to leave with you, friends. Is when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Trust his heart. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is good. He's got you. He's got us. Hold fast to him. When God doesn't make sense, we have these anchors to hold on to. For who God is, remember, he's the same yesterday, today, forever. You can trust him with everything you are. I love you, and um, thanks be to the Lord for his word. It is our anchor, our truth, and everything we need in this moment. Would you allow me to pray for us? Let's do that. Father, we love you and we thank you that you are the great redeemer, that you take all this pain, all this heartache, all this sorrow, all the broken down stuff of this world, and you are working a wonderful, beautiful, redemptive twist Help us to trust your heart. 
Help us to cling to you. Help us to bring our grief to you. Some of us are in denial. This isn't really happening. Some of us are angry and we want to blame someone. Some of us are bargaining. Well, what if and how could we maybe in trying to control things we have no business controlling? Some of us are depressed right now, feeling sad and powerless and grief-stricken. And some of us are maybe to the point where we're accepting, trusting you, surrendering to you. We ask that you would show your glory, your strength, your power, your life. That you would do in the end what is best for your glory and what will bring your people the most joy. And we don't understand what you're doing, Father. We, we do trust your heart, that you are good, that you are wise, and that you are working all things together for our good. And so we give you ourselves, we trust you, we say this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.